Hello, it's Pastor Adam again, and I have a, another encouraging word, I believe, for us. So uh, I ask that you join me as I go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, I thank you for today. And Father, this, this word that we get from your word that we call the Bible is important and, and very necessary. And Father, I'm putting out and asking for your blessing and your help and encouraging us each every day for the decisions we make that we take the narrow road, the road less traveled, the road less popular, and that we have the strength and the courage and the conviction to follow that road. I thank you, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so uh, I titled this today, Without a Shadow of a Doubt. You know, have you, I, I, I just want to start with this. Have you ever, like, so that we can all relate, I think, because I think this is a redundant question. I mean, but the question is, have you ever been in a situation with a bunch of people? Lots of yelling, lots of emotions. And then, you know, all of a sudden you're tempted to cave in under the pressure of the crowd. You know, there's an instance where Jesus talks about this very issue in the last chapter of John, last part, I mean, of John chapter 6. Now, I want to encourage you today, if, if you're not familiar, if it's been a while since you read John chapter 6, or if you've never read it, to read it, you know, pause this now, read it. It's just one chapter to get a good understanding of what's going on there so you can relate to what's going to be said. And then you'll have it fresh in your mind. I mean, if you can't read it now, no problem. I mean, just please read it, though, after you hear this at some point, maybe in the next day or two, when you have a moment. I'd like you to read John chapter 6 after listening to this or before listening to this. And, you know, you know what we know from Scripture is that when Jesus is with humanity, when Jesus, you know, was walking the earth, there were a lot of people we read that who, who gathered around him, listened to what he had to say, but did nothing more than that. In other words, it's probably safe to say they were hanging around Jesus more for the entertainment factor than for any other reason. They didn't really understand or grasp the full implication of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And it, I don't think it's much different 2,000 years later today. We have large percentages of people continuing to claim, you know, they're Christians. I mean, you could, you know, there's lots of polls been taken. They, they're taken almost every year. You know, the Barna Group says that roughly 70% of Americans identify as being Christian. But I'm telling you, I've, I've wondered for the last 20 years based on what I'm seeing. I mean, how upside down the culture is, how, how many really know what being a follower of Jesus entails. I, I just, that's why I can say it because these things going on do not emulate what being a Christian is at all. We, we compromise. Now, I find in the scriptures this direct parallel to what was happening more than 2,000 years ago and what is going on in our day and age. And there's this huge crowd that's following Jesus as the beginning of John chapter 6 Starts and Jesus shares some very challenging words in that in John chapter six that thins out the crowd by the end of that chapter. 
Now this, John chapter 6, is, is, covers a two-day period, or at least I should say, you know, it, it covers a period that's overnight. So we're, we're in one day, then we, we, everybody gets rest, and then it's the next day. Okay, so maybe it's only 24 hours, maybe it's 30 hours, but it covers a period over a nighttime. So you've got two different, you know, days going on here. And after these people heard what Jesus was really asking of them, many turned away and left him. Another way to say it is they're just not sure of their commitment. And at the very same time, there was a handful or a remnant of believers who, who didn't desert Jesus. Without a shadow of a doubt, in other words, they were going to follow Jesus. And that's what I titled this today. So let's look at the beginning of John chapter 6, where Jesus is feeding, it says, 5,000 men. Now, And remember now, when the Bible says 5,000 men, that you know they don't list the women and the kids. So I think it's safe to say there's well over 10,000 people here, okay, when you'd count women and children. Now, these people, they're gathered there on a mountainside. It says they got a lot of grass, so to sit down, and they're listening to Jesus. And it's as if Jesus sees this as an opportunity to test those people listening to him. And so Jesus asks one of his disciples named Philip in John 6, 5, Jesus says, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Okay, now, this is where it always gets really, I find this just, Awesome. I just love reading this stuff and digging into this. It's not by chance that Jesus asked Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida, which is a town nearby where they're at in this part of the Sea of Galilee. So, you know, just think about that. That makes sense. I mean, wouldn't you ask the local guy if you were visiting, if you were in an area, you know, where can we get some good eats in this town? Like if you're going to visit somebody, you go, hey, where's this places to go to get, where's the, the, the food at? Where's the good stuff, right? That's what we do. And, and like we see in scripture, Jesus is always doing something to find out where our faith level is. Because see, human, what, what tend to do us humans we look at events like this from a logical perspective and start to access the cost. I mean, you know, right? Philip suggests that they didn't have enough money in the treasury to cover the meals it would take to feed. Okay? And, and so then Andrew speaks up and he says, hey, this little boy has five loaves and two fish, but how, how far is that going to go among so many? There's a couple of things to point out, if if not more, but at least two things right away. We regularly limit what God does through us by assuming what is possible and what is not possible in the natural. In other words, we tend to, just like Philip did here, constantly estimate what can't be done, and then we rationalize not doing anything because we rationalize it couldn't be done. It can't be done. So why, why spend any time, any effort, any resources towards doing anything? And we also rationalize we will not have enough, as in the case of Andrew's summation of the loaves and the fish. So you know what? What we tend to do, we don't give, we won't do anything at all. We won't give anything, we won't give any resources, or we won't spend any time and effort. The lesson here is to give what you can, folks. Do what you can, and it will make a difference. 
God can take the very little that we have and turn it into something great. Just like here, Jesus takes the loaves and fish, thanks the Father for this, and begins distributing the food, and it multiplied. And the people ate as much as they wanted, and there were even leftovers, 12 baskets full of pieces that they were instructed to fill up the baskets with. And they had 12 leftover loaves, baskets. And Scripture goes on to tell us that the people wanted to make Jesus their king right then and there, and they were prepared to do so by force. So Jesus goes away to a mountain by himself, and the disciples leave by a boat headed for Capernaum. Jesus was well aware of how this could mess up the people if this thing happened with him being appointed king. It's short-sighted on the people's part, mainly because they didn't understand the spiritual connotation Jesus was trying to teach them. Okay? Now, there's so much else going on here. I'm not getting on the stuff about Jesus. You know, they found Jesus walking on the water. This is one of two times, okay? Now, so it's the next morning now. I'm just fast-forwarding. It's the next morning, and the crowd wakes up, and they're hungry, right? They're looking for Jesus, hoping for a repeat of the previous day's miracle, but Jesus was nowhere to be found. The people discovered that Jesus had also went to Capernaum, so they got some boats and went there and found him. And when they get there, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus tells them why they had come. John chapter 6, verse 26. He says, Verily, verily, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, little comment here about when you see verily, verily, or many times in the Bible it'll say truly, truly, or when, when it's repeated like that, uh, it's... It's, it's for a purpose. And the purpose is that it was very much emphasized or it was very loud that Jesus was saying this. So this is like one that we don't want to neglect at all. We really want to pay attention to what was just said when he says, verily, verily. In other words, Jesus is saying here, let's cut out all this baloney and cut to the chase. You're not here because you believe in me. You're here because you want your stomachs, which are growling, right? And you want breakfast. That's why you came. So stop all this nonsense and acting like you're here to follow me and obey me, right? You're only here to get some food. You only want the immediate fix. Just, just fix this immediate issue. I don't, I'm not interested in the long-term thing. <laughs> so let's come out and deal with this. Jesus used this as an opportunity to remind them what a person's priority should be in life, right? He continues talking in John chapter 6, verse 27 now. He says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know you're hungry, but I didn't do that miracle yesterday because I'm going to do it for you every day. No, that was done to demonstrate the power of God and to show you how much he loves you. There are many more important things in life than food. There are many more important things in life than clothing. There are many more important things in life than where you live. There are more important things in life than what you drive. <laughs> Jesus is saying, please do not continue to make the mistakes to elevate your material status as the top priority in your life. You know, in another situation in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. I tell you, 
Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's a message, it's a theme resonating throughout Jesus' three and a half year ministry in the person, in person, constantly telling people this, wherever he meets. The woman at the well, right? <laughs> same concept, same connotations. You want water, but this water, you're gonna still thirst. You need to get my drink of me, right? Jesus tells him at the Feast of Tabernacle, and I believe it's John chapter eight. Come to me if you thirst, right? When they're doing the water libation ceremony, the, the uh, Pharisees were, they do this every year. The Jews do this big ceremony around the Feast of Tabernacles. Here's another thing to make sure we take away from this. Please don't take away that Jesus is saying not to plan because we should be planning things. Jesus is saying and reminding us multiple times, don't worry about such things. Jesus is saying, don't be so obsessed with these things. He goes, it's okay to think about clothes. It's okay to you know, think about food. It's okay to think about the future. That's not evil. Those aren't evil things. But Jesus is saying, don't make them all you live for. But for so many of us, honestly, that's how we live. We have made it our lifestyle and routine to put so much emphasis on what we're going to wear, or what we're going to eat, or what car we're going to drive. And sadly, honestly, for some of us, we get off track, and that seems to be our goals in life. And all of a sudden, right, in a moment, we'll leave We'll leave. We'll be gone from this earth. And all that stuff will be left behind. I mean, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. If you make these things your sole purpose of life, it will be a wasted life. Hey, just we just need to acknowledge it and repent of it and admit it. See, in this dialogue, Jesus was saying to these people and to you and me, Jesus is saying, hey, I provided for you, but that is not what it's all about. I want to appeal to a deeper hunger inside of you. The hunger you have in your stomach right now is indicative of a deeper hunger in your soul. It's a hunger for purpose and destiny. It's a hunger for the Father. And Jesus is saying, I will satisfy that deepest hunger you have. But the people weren't getting it then. And today, so many of us still don't get it. I mean, listen to the people's response after Jesus said this in John chapter 6, verses 30 and 31. They say, well, then what sign will you give that we may see and believe you, Jesus? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, I mean, another way that, to say what the people just said is, hey, Jesus, you tell us that you're the son of God. Okay, fine, then do a miracle. Or, hint, hint, make us breakfast again. Now, is this topic, is this thing frustrating to you? You know, does it irritate you some? I mean, it frustrates me because here's why. I mean, I know that was a vague question, so maybe you're not sure where I'm going with this. But here's why this frustrates me. These people that we're reading in the scriptures, they actually witnessed Jesus. They, they saw him, they touched him, they heard him, they looked at him. 
Jesus is the ultimate example without flaw. These people saw the miracles. They heard his word with their own ears. But you know what? They still didn't believe. The problem is that it's said in this, this chapter, they wanted to make Jesus their king. And it had to be on their terms. They wanted a king who would feed them breakfast while they lounged around, a king who would heal them when they were sick, a king who would cater to their wants and whims, a king who would conform to their goals and their plans. You know, I've heard, I've seen, I've read about a lot of people who feel that very same way about God today. It's kind of like they say, I want God in my life as co-pilot. But that just doesn't work, folks. God doesn't want to be our co-pilot. Actually, he doesn't even want us in the cockpit. He he wants us willingly to hand the controls over to him. He wants to be our Lord and our God as well as our Savior and friend. It makes me think about those alarming words Jesus said about never knowing us. I mean, in these words Jesus spoke are often quoted, but sadly, too often misunderstood. In this familiar passage, right, Jesus declares, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That you know, this is such a sobering discourse that all of us will, or we should pause. We'll probably swallow hard after hearing that again. It's the last part of the famous Sermon on the Mount. But I wanna I wanna take a little bit closer look here and really think about what these people Jesus is talking about must have done here and when he's, when he's referring to this in Matthew, right? I mean, in John. Or maybe it's a better way to say this. It's not what they did. It's what they didn't do. I'm back in John now, John chapter six, when they, you know, asked him after he kind of scolded them. And it's the whole point because what they, what they didn't do, I believe, reveals why Jesus said they will be sent away from him. Well, what is it that they didn't do? I, I contend it's something like the following kind of statements. They didn't say this. They didn't say, but Lord, you died for our sins on the cross. And they didn't say, Lord, we have been trusting in your sacrifice for salvation. Our only hope is in you and what you did to pay for our sins. They didn't say those kinds of things. Instead, what they implied, and Jesus' whole point is, they were pointing to their own works. They pointed to the very things which they were relying upon to earn a spot in the kingdom of God, in heaven. The reason they will ascend away forever is not because they didn't do enough works. It's because they don't know the Lord's works. And if they do what Jesus did for them, they aren't relying on him 24-7. I point out here that, to me, this is an example of what I call a professing Christian, but not a possessing Christian. I mean, folks, 
Here's the deal again. Quick recap of what it means to be. The only way you, you and I know the Lord is by grace through faith. It's only through faith that man remains connected to God's saving grace. It's not something we earn on the front end or in the middle or on judgment day. It is the grace of God from beginning to end. And having said that, we still must always affirm the importance of good works because these works, these works flow from faith in Jesus Christ and are evident in the life of someone who is a born-again believer. James 2, 17, faith without works is dead. But, but why, is, why is that common in James? Why is such faith dead? I mean, is this type of faith dead because the person isn't doing enough works? No. This type of faith is dead because it's not grounded in Jesus Christ alone. Saving faith always relies completely upon Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And once that happens, the good works will follow, or they should. But the works don't happen in order to make faith come alive. That would be backwards, folks. Faith is alive the minute the Holy Spirit works the miracle of conversion in the heart of a person. This is the moment an individual stops trying to earn salvation and instead places confidence in Christ and his work on the cross alone. In fact, we cannot do our first good for God until we first trust Christ alone. I mean, we might have done a lot of things, but they weren't good in God's eyes. Only once you've been submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you trusted him for your salvation and you keep going through that filter every time you want to do something good. Mm. All right, so back to the conversation Jesus is having with these people in Capernaum. These people ask Jesus, what must we do to do what must we do to do the work God requires? And Jesus answers in John 6, 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. <laughs> there it is again. It's very normal for us as we transform into these new Christian creatures to ask and find out what we must do. I mean, hey, that's a good question. That's a fair question. Some of us are likely asking that question right now during this message. Well, Jesus answers that by pointing us to what God already did. Jesus called it the work of God. Faith is always the foundation for any God-pleasing works in the life of a believer. Think of faith, if you will, as in Christ as the foundation and your works assisting in building the rest of the house which God is building upon that solid foundation of faith in Christ. Now, if you're trying to build your spiritual house without first having the proper foundation, it will all come crashing down. All those are, and, and, and see, and those are the people to whom Jesus is saying, I never knew you, depart from me. Jesus is just saying, hey, that type of person is not connected to me. And so their works are in vain. Doesn't matter the amount. It doesn't matter the frequency. If it's not based on your grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it's a filthy work. It's, it's burned up. It's nothing. And Jesus is saying, 
If that is you, then you have the wrong foundation. So stop that. Repent of that. Admit that. Start today, right? Jesus is more concerned with our walk than our talk, folk. Scripture also says this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's the only foundation that God will accept, people. It was the assignment Jesus left heaven for and came to earth to die for. And the sad reality is many people assume that the foundation in the house is their responsibility, but nothing could be further from the truth. If we attempt to build a foundation in in the house, we will fail miserably. And it's that way for everyone. See, newsflash, we're all sinners. Romans 3 verse 23. And sinners are not capable of building a house which God accepts, let alone a foundation which God accepts. God must be the author of it in order for it to last. That's why scripture refers to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. Right? So, so I think what we're getting to today again is how is your faith? Are you the author of it? Are you the finisher of it? Or is God the author of it? Because for believers, for Christians, God is the only one who not only began a good work in you, but also the one who will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So, you know, some well-meaning Christians regularly use Christ's words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21-23 to push people to do more in order to prove they're genuine believers. But I'm telling you, that's a misguided approach. While it's true that some professing believers are not connected to the Lord, you know, at all, it is also true that the real problem lies with the lack of repentance and a lack of faith. You see, folks, here it is. It's not doing more which is going to fix the problem. Instead, the need is for us to humbly turn to the Lord as we repent and believe in the good news. It's the only way to know Jesus. And then we begin living for Jesus and doing the works he commands us to do, but only after the proper foundation is laid. If you sincerely want to live for the Lord and you are trusting Jesus Christ alone to save you, then relax. Christ is not going to tell you, depart from me, I never knew you. I mean, on the flip side, go, go forth in confidence, in the confident assurance of your salvation and ask God to work through you in sharing his love with others. I, I realize so many get confused regarding looking at some of these scriptures. One puzzling verse for many is Psalm 51 verse 4. When David says to the Lord, he says in Psalm 51 4, against you, God, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, that verse has puzzled some for for generations because this passage was written after David was confronted by the prophet Nathan for taking another man's wife, Bathsheba, right? And then murdering the husband, or Uriah, as well as lying about it all. So it's puzzling to people because we wonder, why does David only confess to God? Shouldn't David confessed his evil deeds to those people he hurt, to those families? Let's let's clear something up here. David is, I don't believe David was ever ignorant of the consequences of his actions, nor is he minimizing what he's done to Bathsheba, Uriah, the families involved, and the nation of Israel. 
Rather, David's admitting that vertical sin, okay, sin, like sin against God occurred first, which then paved the way for destructive horizontal sin against others here on earth. This is an important principle for us to never, ever forget, especially as we consider the topic of personal change or transformation. Here, here's the, every single sin we do is a vertical sin first, no matter how thunderous or minimal the horizontal implications of it are here on earth. In other words, every single act of human wickedness committed against another human being starts with the heartbreak, with the, with the breaking of intimate vertical relationship with God. Every horizontal sin forgets God's presence. Every sin is actually a quest for God's throne. Every sin replaces the creator with some created idol. It's somewhere in provision, protection, and acceptance. It funnels into those three things. Everything that we do funnels into those three things. David was able to, you know, take Bathsheba to bed because in that moment he didn't care about the presence of God. David was able to order the murder of Uriah because in that moment he believed he was the ruler of all things. David was bringing unspeakable pain to other families because in that moment, his idol of pleasure was more important than the people to whom he was called to protect. So likewise, when we sin, we are always breaking vertical relationship with God. We're always creating a mess in the situations, the locations and the relationships of everyday life. And we do this as if God is not even in the room. We do it as if God doesn't notice what is going on and we can hide it from him. So hearing this, I hope we desire to change. I hope we desire to transform and follow Jesus without a shadow of a doubt. So if every sin is vertical before it's horizontal, then the following must also be true. Personal change must take place vertically before it ever takes place horizontally. In other words, if we want to see lasting change in our earthly situations, in our earthly relationships, right, in our earthly locations, then we've got to start by seeking a change in our heavenly relationship. Encourage you today, confess that you're not always aware of God's presence. Confess you don't joyfully submit to God's lordship. Confess you're not, you regularly pursue your idols more than your savior. And in the midst of all of your confession, take heart because your sin is the result of a broken relationship. Your hope for change is only found in a restored relationship. That's why Jesus was crucified. It's only through the gift of adoption into a restored relationship that we find what we need to experience life transformation, to experience victory over sin. We need a greater love for Jesus than we have for ourselves. And Jesus' divine grace is the only thing that has the power to produce that kind of love in all of us. God bless you all. Goodbye.